From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Substances that are shunned elsewhere gain legitimacy in Colorado. First, cannabis, now psychedelics, from ketamine to mushrooms. What we saw at a massive gathering of advocates here. We really are at the very beginning, so it's all the feelings. I'm scared for what's coming, I'm excited, transformed. I'm just so grateful to be part of this effort to find mental health solutions. Then, for Pride Month, we share an episode of CPR's podcast, My Story So Far. This one about coming of age on the Western Slope. My very brief time with him is part of the mosaic of relationships that allowed me to survive as a queer teen in rural Colorado. Proof that even if someone hasn't figured out how to love themselves, the love of others can still carry them along. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. First, it was cannabis, now psychedelics. Colorado once again leads the pack rethinking how illegal drugs might be used medicinally. Denver just hosted the fourth Psychedelic Science Conference. It drew nearly 12,000 attendees, hundreds of speakers, including Colorado Governor Jared Polis and former Texas Governor Rick Perry. There were celebrities as well, actor Jaden Smith and Super Bowl-winning quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Well, our Alejandro Alonso Galva and Jenna McMurtry were at this conference all last week and join us. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Gracias, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. This feels like quintessential Denver, a conference focused on illegal substances moving towards acceptance, maybe legality. What was the goal? The conference was hosted by a nonprofit called MAPS, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And that multidisciplinary part was really present. The conference had panels on legalization, medicinal treatment, medical research, equity, community involvement, and so much more. There are also exhibits for psychedelic art, from sculptures, paintings, modern art. The lobby was full of musicians, and it had an expo-styled marketplace where people could learn about products and experiences. Everything from treatments and retreats to buying manure for your plants. What about medical professionals, though? Yeah, one thing I want to make clear from the get-go, this was not Hollywood's version of a psychedelics gathering. The conference was full of nurses, therapists, doctors, scientists, policymakers, community activists, entrepreneurs, you name it. In the introduction, I mentioned former Texas Governor Rick Perry, a conservative Republican. I wonder if that raised <laughs> eyebrows. Ollie. The Democratic governor of Colorado and the Republican governor of Col- of Texas walk into a psychedelic conference, Ryan. <laughs> it, it, it feels like the start of a joke. And the Belco Theater at the Colorado Convention Center was packed with everybody wondering the same thing. And Governor Perry acknowledged that right away. Uh, But Perry's opening remarks sort of signaled the central focus this conference had on healing and treatment. 
he joked that he probably didn't agree on a lot of things with Governor Polis or even the event organizers. And he said that in a crowd of 12,000 quite free thinking people, uh, there's going to be some major disagreements. But that, again, the single unifying thread all these folks had was on how psychedelics could be used for Treatment. Treatment. I gather you mean for substance abuse, addiction, mental illness? Exactly. Everything from depression and anxiety to healing generational traumas for both families and whole generations. There were panels on the use of psychedelics to heal the generational traumas in black American communities due to slavery, Jim Crow, redlining George Floyd. I mean, the list goes on to panels on how ayahuasca is being used to heal trauma and help broker peace in the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And for Governor Perry, it was treatments for veterans suffering from PTSD. Uh, He credited that as part of his personal journey to the legalization movement. And he thanked people in the crowd who, for their previous work and for their courage on the issue, acknowledging that he wasn't always part of that. Working together to change people's minds, literally, figuratively, and forever. And when Polis got on the stage right after Governor Perry, he said that this bipartisan support gives the movement strength. And yet, of course, many of these substances remain illegal at the federal level, Jenna. Yeah, and the FDA has not approved these drugs for any of these uses yet, which causes some access problems for therapists and doctors, but also for the scientists who are trying to do research. The agency, however, did release its first draft guidance on research during the last day of the conference. And Oregon legalized before Colorado, as we all know, so they're kind of like half a step ahead. Uh, Angela Albee runs the Oregon Psilocybin Services Program for their health authority. Uh, She talked about that interplay between the state and federal government. Uh, In Oregon, the state is actually required by law to make contact with the Justice Department to discuss their psilocybin rollout. We have sent a letter and we received a response that said, thank you, we're aware of what you're doing, and we'll let you know if we have any questions. So you can kind of hear the little dance that's happening now between the two levels of government, state and federal. Uh, Colorado also plans to do the same thing with the U.S. attorney here. Uh, To be clear, at the moment, there's no equivalent to the Cole memo uh, from the Justice Department on psilocybin. Right, the Cole memo has to do with cannabis. Remind us more about what it is. Right, so the Cole memo was issued in 2013 by then U.S. Deputy Attorney General James Cole uh, during the Obama administration. And it basically said that the Justice Department would not prosecute federal offenses for cannabis in states where it is legal and well-regulated. And they had some specific criteria for well-regulated, like limiting access to kids, no interstate commerce, making sure there wasn't any connection to organized crime or violence, those sorts of things. Both states hope to have an equivalent memo for these psilocybin programs. Right. In other words, Oregon and Colorado crave some federal guidance on psychedelics. I want to switch gears and talk a bit about equity, a conversation that picked up heavily after the rollout of legal cannabis in Colorado. Uh, Jenna, where are those conversations in this movement? Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan. And if healing was the main focus of this conference, equity was tied right into that, specifically when it comes to the inclusion of indigenous people and communities. 
Maya Padilla is a member of the Arapaho and Mexica nations. She addressed the whole conference and basically said indigenous communities have seen things they hold sacred, like water and tobacco, hoarded and commercialized. And she's afraid the same thing will happen with these medicines. Some of our medicines that we use in our ceremonies have found their way into mainstream America. These are medicines that define our very spiritual and cultural existence and facilitate our connection with our ancestors, the creator, and all of creation. So legalization is a highly nuanced conversation in some communities. Exactly. I spoke with Forrest Tadanipa. He's a member of the Comanche Nation of Oklahoma and also a Minnesota law professor. He hosted a talk on peyote and the importance it plays in the Native American church. Peyote is not currently listed under Colorado's Prop 122, but he's looking ahead to see what those implications of legalization could mean to his community. There's a lot of anxiety around the legalization that, you know, expanding it to too wide of an audience will lead to too much pressure on what is a fragile habitat. Peyote takes years and years to grow, like five to ten years to grow into um, you know mature plant. And so there's a big anxiety that it will be overused and in, in all of the you know centuries of resistance to suppression will kind of be for nothing because just the habitat will and then the populations will be destroyed. And Tadanipa made it clear that commercialization of these medicines would go against not only indigenous wishes, but also against the ethos of the whole psychedelic movement in general. Oh. Uh, you also hear the intersection, I think, of this movement and the environmental movement in a conference like this. Yeah, and that's something Maya Padilla made very clear as well, that the legalization movement must include a stewardship of the land. What kind of things are being done to avoid the mistakes of the past, like in the cannabis rollout, Ollie? Well, during the conference, Governor Polis announced that he would seek more power from the legislature uh, for mass pardons of people convicted of crimes involving psychedelics, well, s- uh, specifically crimes that are now legal under Colorado's Prop 122. And this is similar to what the state has done for past cannabis crimes in order to sort of play catch up on the equity front. Uh, but the, And the governor's advisors at the conference stressed that they're trying to make equity a priority from the get-go this time and not something they come back around to 10 years after legalization. Uh, but it's unclear how many people this will actually help because while growing and using magic mushrooms is legal, uh, selling psilocybin is still illegal. Mm. Uh, now, the big thing I heard again and again is taking it slow, uh, making sure there's responsibility and accountability in the rollout and the use of these drugs. Uh, I heard that from scientists giving advice on the latest research to conservatives, to folks in the Jewish psychedelic movement. Uh, and here again is Albi, the manager for organs program. The best practices are um, not created yet, but they're, we're going to learn together. And it's really up to that regulated community to help shape those best practices as we continue to learn. Starting off slowly and intentionally is important because we're setting a precedent and making a mark on all of this work for years to come. Well, I have had my mind open to many new ideas. Thanks to this reporting. <laughs> thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. You heard from CPR editor Alejandro Alonso Galva and reporter Jenna McMurtry running down a major psychedelics conference in Colorado. Tomorrow, an update on the rollout of psilocybin, which voters statewide decriminalized last November. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Celebrate Pride Month with Indy 1023. I love it when we 
Celebrate love and community, visibility and progress. All this month, show your pride and listen to Indy 1023. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Members of the LGBTQ community in rural western Colorado came together recently to share stories for CPR's podcast, My Story So Far. They talked about the complexities of gender identity and their journeys towards self-acceptance. Let's join host Luis Antonio Perez at the Lithic Bookstore in Fruta, A note, these stories include talk of self-harm and suicidal ideation. When I first started telling folks that I wanted to organize a storytelling event on the Western Slope, a friend and colleague clued me in on a vibrant scene in Grand Junction and neighboring towns like Fruta. That's where I met Caleb, a local poet and employee at Lithic Bookstore and Press. My name is Caleb Fergancic. Been working here at Lithic for I think maybe two months now. When Caleb moved to Grand Junction, he quickly connected to the bookstore. He was drawn by the diversity on its shelves and the welcoming atmosphere. Lithic Bookstore is a place full of curiosities. It's surprising because it's uh, from the outside. It's a uh, you know. I guess it's kind of an office building, and you walk up the stairs, and it feels like you're walking into an accountant's uh, office, and you make a left, and there's just beautiful space here. And for Caleb? Yeah, I just kind of fell in love with the place the first time I walked in, and it's just a comfortable place to be and meet cool people. One of my favorite shelves here in the bookstore is titled The Resist Shelf. They're they're books that you wouldn't be able to find in a physical store um, in a rural place like this, I think. Part of the reason Caleb is so drawn to the Resist Shelf is because he's part of a community in rural, small-town Colorado that we rarely hear from. The people that are coming in are just various people from the queer and genderqueer community here um, on the Western Slope. And by nature of it being a small, rural town, um, we all have either met or worked together. So in a way, it's kind of like just the chosen family coming together to hear each other tell stories, um, which is really, really cool. It is really, really cool. And that's the community we're going to hear stories from in this episode. Our first story comes from Lexi, who shows us how a little support can go a long, long way. My name is Lexi, and I am an asexual, panromantic, transgender woman. Try and say that three times fast. (laughs) I, I knew that I was different from my earliest memories. But since I predate the internet, there was no going and doing a quick Google search. Um, what I did know is that the thoughts and feelings I had were wrong and that if I were to ever express those, I would be beat or worse. Um, It was a very different world growing up as Gen X. You weren't there. I don't think you can understand how different it is. But I knew that this was a secret that I had to carry to my grave. I did pretty good at keeping that secret, but as the years went on, Suppressing my true self became more and more difficult. I stayed as far away from anything 
queer-oriented as I could because I knew if I experienced any of that, I was going to lose myself to it. Four months after my 41st birthday, my entire world was destroyed. I was brutally emotionally broken to the point that I was more than a little suicidal. I pretty much lost everything, and I grabbed a bottle for the first time in 17 years, drunk and hurting more than I ever thought possible. I told someone my secret for the very first time. Too bad they weren't trustworthy. Being outed on top of everything else that I was dealing with was just way too much. I, I needed help. So I hopped online and I found a therapist that specialized in gender issues. If they couldn't help me, I mean, who could? My first several sessions were mainly learning all the stuff I had avoided up till then. She even gave me homework at my age. Um, one of the things that she very strongly recommended was that I start seeing going to a support group called Transcend. And uh, she gave me the brochure and all the information. And she was pretty much insisting, and it would be really stupid of me to ignore the expert. So here we go. Now, at the time, the location was kept secret for safety purposes. Um, so I had to contact one of the leaders, and they gave me the information to get in. It was kind of like an old-time speakeasy where my shrink's name opened the door. <laughs> Finally, and all too soon at the same time, the night of the next support meeting showed up. I had no idea what to expect. Quite frankly, I was terrified. I put on some jeans and a t-shirt, because that was pretty much the only clothes I owned at the time. Pulled my hat down low. I had over an hour drive to sit there and create all of these wildly unrealistic scenarios to stress and freak out over the entire way up there. By the time I pulled up outside, I was a nervous wreck. I had never been to any kind of a support group before, let alone one for transgender people. I wasn't going to know anyone there. And as soon as I walk in the door, everybody's going to know I'm different. I sat in the car for what felt like forever, chain smoking and trying to work up the courage to go in. I probably could have used a couple shots of whiskey, but I knew I had to drive home, and I had no idea how soon that was going to be. But I finally did it. I finally worked up courage, got out of the car, and walked up. And as I did, I could see through the glass door. They had three eight-foot tables pushed together to form one huge table and a whole bunch of people sitting around it. bad part about the glass door is they could see me. And so they came over and opened the door. There, there was no backing out at that point. I walked in with my head down, and I knew everybody had to be staring at me, the stranger in their midst. You know, intellectually, I knew I wasn't the only trans woman out there. 
But that's something that happens in your big cities like uh, San Francisco and New York. That, that doesn't happen around here, right? So imagine my surprise when I walk in to an entire room full of trans people. All ages, sizes. There were even trans men there. Did you know that was a thing? So they start the meeting, and they all go around the table saying their name and pronouns. And I started to panic. All the years of, you know, fantasizing, experimenting, purging, uh, coming up with completely unrealistic scenarios on how I got turned into a woman so that it wasn't my fault. I had never once thought of a name for myself. And I had no time to do it. And I had to get rid of my birth name. So when it came around to me, I blurted the first thing that came to mind, which was the feminine of what would soon become my dead name. I sat quietly, listening as people were talking about their challenges, giving advice. They asked me a few questions, got a little bit out of me, but I was too terrified to really volunteer anything. And luckily, they all seemed to understand that. Finally, I, I needed to ask where the restroom was. Uh, the stress and tension had just done a number on my bladder. And the restroom was down a long hallway and around a couple of corners. It was dark, quiet, and so peaceful. On my way back, one of the leaders met me in that hallway. They knew I wasn't comfortable and thought maybe if they engaged me in a one-on-one -on -one, that it would be easier. We gave kind of a brief exchange of backstories, and I started feeling more at ease, like maybe I do belong here. Right before the group broke up for the night, one of the leaders passed around a piece of paper for everyone, and anyone who wanted could write their name and phone number on it in case I needed support in between meetings. Every single person gave me their number that night. As I walked out to my car, I found I, I was actually looking forward to my next meeting. That the rush of emotions I went through that night was just overwhelming. You can't name an emotion I didn't feel. I wasn't alone. Fear and shame of thinking that I wasn't trans enough, that I was an imposter in their space. Still deal with that occasionally. The despair of knowing that I would never, ever look as good as some of the ladies in that room. And the righteous rage that these people had to stay hidden for their own safety. I felt it all and all at once. Just the thoughts and emotions whirling chaotically bouncing around like pinballs, you know? I spent so much worry and stress, jumped up all kinds of scenarios, all the reasons that I needed to panic about going there. And they made me feel loved and like I belonged. The things that I learned there, along with the people that I met, formed the support and the foundation for me to completely rebuild my life from scratch.
they became my surrogate or chosen family. I had many great times there, met many wonderful people. But as time went on, we all started drifting apart, outgrowing our need for a support group, till eventually there was nobody left who wanted to step up and take leadership. And the group ended. Transcend may be gone, but I will never forget that day. The very first time I walked in, and the love and the support that I received there. Lexi's story reminds me that it can take a lot of courage and effort to seek and find help. But the steps we take toward finding support and community are steps we take towards our own happiness. Caleb is known for organizing Slamming Bricks, an annual slam poetry competition in Grand Junction, held during Pride Week. While he has experience performing poetry on stage, this was the first time Caleb shared a personal story on stage, a true-life narrative about his experiences. That's true for most of the storytellers on every episode of this show, sharing their truth on stage for the very first time. Caleb's story is about coming of age in the small, sleepy town of Delta, 40 miles from Grand Junction. Let ruin end here. Let him find honey where there was once a slaughter. Let him enter the lion's cage and find a field of lilacs. Let this be the healing. And if not, let it be. A little prayer from Danette Smith. My name is Caleb Fergancic. I use he, they pronouns interchangeably, identify as queer, and I've lived in Grand Junction, Colorado for about 13 years. When I was asked to share a story about my life, I quickly decided that I wanted to share a happy story. I think that there is no doubt that queer representation in mainstream media has exploded in my 30 years of life, but those representational narratives still rely heavily on pain and sadness being the epicenter of queer character identity. For example, some of the most successful movies and shows from 2022 featuring queer and genderqueer characters that I watched, Bones and All, My Policeman, or Euphoria, revolve around closeted characters, characters struggling with deep mental health issues, and characters who both perpetuate and are victim of intense physical and sexual violence. To be sure, those narratives are still true of queer and genderqueer people all across America particularly here in rural America, where houselessness, suicide, and hate crimes are burdens that we carry to a much larger degree. And to be sure, my life has been shaped by those narratives. As someone who grew up in Delta, Colorado, amongst a religious household in a community that subjected me to the gambit of homophobia that I would barely escape at age 16 as a suicide survivor. And while those deeply traumatic narratives have been instrumental in providing fuel for my fire as a queer community organizer, there's so much more to who I am, just like there's so much more to the queer experience. And despite what a pride parade may lead you to believe, it is not always sunshine and rainbows. 
but there is good here. And I think that there was good then. So tonight, I want to share a story about a different fire. Not a metaphorical fire of righteous rage and indignation that is arguably the reason that I was invited here tonight, but a very real fire that was just as important to my survival and future as a rural queer teen. Delta is a small county seat town on the western slope nestled amongst the Uncompahgre and Gunnison rivers, buttressing against the southern slopes of the Grand Mesa. Once the spiritual epicenter for the indigenous Ute, Delta is now a relatively homogenous community of white blue-collar Christian Americans. When I was a kid, it was still the kind of place where boys could be let loose in marauding bands with bikes and walkie-talkies to explore unsupervised. Uh, think the Sandlot or Stand By Me. Um, and even teenagers who had scant to do but drive backcountry roads with booze um, purchased from older siblings for a finder's fee uh, got away with a much larger degree of troublemaking. And I think my nostalgia for Delta is complicated at best um, because my queerness, uh, for whatever reason, um, maybe the lisp, uh, was not something uh, that I was able to hide by the time I reached high school. So while my early childhood memories are often fond and full of freedom, my teenage memories are fragmented and likely grossly warped by the kinds of trauma that I've already enumerated. Even today, living only some 40 miles from it, living a very out and proud lifestyle and being engaged in queer community building, visits to Delta can still diminish all of that, stripping me bare and bringing me back to 17, drowning in a need for acceptance and belonging and all of the things that I used to supplement it. It's the summer of 2011, and at this time I had dropped out of Delta High School after my suicide attempt and enrolled in the alternative high school where I was working on graduating a year early to move to Grand Junction. I was a deeply depressed teenager, deeply enmeshed in the kind of trouble that troubled teens are prone to getting into. On those summer nights, trouble often led me to the Delta County gravel pit and the adobe hills cascading off of the Grand Mesa. As I've said, uh, backcountry roads and booze are a staple of teenage freedom in Delta, and desert bonfire parties are a tradition as old as the Delta-Rado Fair. It's a tradition that some Delta law enforcement themselves have participated in, um, and so strange lights in the desert were not always suspect enough to warrant investigation. And uh, trouble led me to those adobe hills with my friend Cody, who was on summer break from college. We had met when I was a freshman, and he a senior in the high school theater program. Uh, even then, uh, we were a collision of debauchery, uh, sneaking shooters in the bathroom prior to the production of Alice in Wonderland, um, until we were too drunk to remember our lines. Um, though I will argue um, that the impromptu performance of the Mad Hatter and March Hare during the Mad Tea Party scene is still one of the finest theatrical moments to grace the Delta School District Theater. <laughs> Shout out to Mrs. Dysart. Um, we definitely owe you another drink soon. Um, but it became a weekly tradition that summer for Cody and me to host these desert bonfire parties. Uh, we would spend an entire day just patrolling for wood pallets and discarded furniture, rallying our various friends for a raucous rendezvous. And that gravel pit became kind of a hodgepodge of teens and young adults. Um, I describe it as like a very dusty breakfast club. Um, and it was one of the only spaces where I could explore my queerness openly around peers without judgment or fear of violence protected by my allies like my friend Cody. Um, and alcohol in developing teenage minds are obviously not a healthy mix, uh, so my recollection of those evenings um, is certainly not comprehensive or even linear. Um, but I do remember winding up in my underwear more times than not. <laughs> 
evidence of which is strictly guarded on my Facebook account. Um, and I'm not sure why, because those of you that know me know that old habits die hard. <laughs> um, and you can find similar pictures of me on social media from just two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I remember Cody sacrificing his clothing to the blaze and then waking up and griping in frustration um, about the loss of said clothing. And I remember Joshua. Joshua is not his actual name, but I think some degree of anonymity is right for this story. And as an atheist still influenced by my Christian upbringing, there's something romantically sacrilegious to me about a queer story of Caleb and Joshua in the <laughs> desert together. <laughs> Um, I met Joshua on Grindr, which is a location-based dating app for gay men, um, and I know everyone in the audience is like, we know what Grindr is. Um, so obviously you know that being 17, I had lied about my age to access the app. And there are serious risks with dating apps, right? Significantly more so for minors, but in a community that makes living openly queer dangerous, and a school district that suppresses comprehensive sexual education, apps like Grindr become one of the few outlets for exploration for teenagers however dangerous they may be. Um, but Joshua was every rural gay teen's dream. He lived in the big city of Grand Junction. He was out, proud, and older with more experience. He worked at the mall, um, and he had great pecs, um, like really great pecs. Um, and Glee was really big at the time, which I know is more problematic representation. <laughs> but dang, if I didn't feel like Kurt Hummel finding his Blaine Anderson. Um, and so I had driven up to Grand Junction a couple of times to hang out with him, uh, walking the mall, going to movies, listening to Lady Gaga in his room, um, and he had decided to drive to Delta to meet my friends at one of these desert parties. And up to that point, uh, most of my experiences with other guys had been secret and solely sexual, uh, frequently followed by no forms of communication until we were drawn back to the fire to start that sad dance all over again. Um, but Joshua changed all of that for me. While my friends danced around the fire to one of Cody's mega mashup pop remixes, I remember sitting on Adobe Hill with him overlooking it all. And I experienced romantic intimacy for the first time on that hill, tenderly tracing each other's bodies with shaking hands, staring up at the stars, talking about our dreams for the future, kissing each other gently with the occasional tooth clang, and awkwardly giggling as we fumbled through our nerves and butterflies. And one thing led to another UV blue shot, um, and soon we were tangled up together on a pull-out couch Cody and I had dragged up to the bonfire one day. And the bonfire party was like still in full swing while we became braver in our exploration of each other's body, and gentle kisses gave um, way to much more passionate lovemaking. Uh, clearly, neither of us cared about an audience. Uh, and it was standard for bonfire party attendees to pass out in cars and truck beds, and as everyone trickled away, Joshua and I stayed there on that pull-up bed, still kissing and giggling in the afterglow of the fire and our first time, sweating profusely on account of the lingering flames, staring up at the tendrils of smoke mixing into the Milky Way, drifting off into those early morning hours. I don't know um, where Joshua is today. I'm ashamed to admit uh, that I went, ran away from that relationship very soon after. I think not yet ready to accept that I could be desired in that way and certainly not willing to be vulnerable in the way that relationships require. But I do think about Joshua and that night with him next to the fire often. And I'm immensely thankful to him for being a beacon of good in an otherwise turbulent and dark time. My very brief time with him, 
is part of the mosaic of relationships that allowed me to survive as a queer teen in rural Colorado. Proof that even if someone hasn't figured out how to love themselves, the love of others can still carry them along. I think too that it was an elementary moment of queer resistance for me. Delta Colorado may not be known as a safe and affirming community for queer people, but somehow I was still able to carve out that space for myself and be publicly queer in front of God and everyone with a great guy with really great pecs. And <laughs> I remind myself that I'm not alone in memories like this one and that rural queer and gender queer teens everywhere are finding space for connection and love however they can. And it's through that lens that I'm able to give myself grace and to think of my adolescent self not as a troubled and depressed teen or a suicide statistic, but if only briefly, as happy. My story so far with host Luis Antonio Perez. Find all the episodes wherever you get podcasts and at CPR.org. Special thanks to CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg for helping us connect with storytellers. Thanks also to the Lithic Bookstore in Fruta, which hosted the event. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. After World War II, some people were shying away from German culture, including the works of Bach and Beethoven. But a wealthy Chicago couple decided the sleepy town of Aspen was the perfect place to keep that music alive. In the summer of 1949, they invited thought leaders, poets, and musicians from around the world for two weeks of philosophy and music. The musicians loved it so much, they came back the next year and brought their students along, some pitched tents for sleeping and practicing. Renowned composer Igor Stravinsky came too. His luggage got lost, so he conducted in jeans and tennis shoes. Today, the Aspen Music Festival in school still attracts top performers and rising students, many of whom return to teach at one of the world's most elite summer music programs. But some of that early, outdoorsy spirit remains. Just ask violin virtuoso Gil Shaham, who says it's like going to camp. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are two things Yeshi Gebra Meskel remembers from her childhood in Ethiopia. First was how many kids were around. We were like 12 of us in the family, so I didn't even go to the neighbors. We had enough kids. Second, there came a point when she was no longer safe in Ethiopia. So her family fled the civil war, dodging bullets. Oh, yeah. We ran out of the country. A bunch of us got together and we just left because they were killing kids. And then we walk through different areas that we don't know. And we got to the next neighbor, which is Sudan. And from Sudan, we applied as immigrants to come to here, to this country. So, yes, I mean, kids were shot at and kids were killed. Some unlucky ones. They didn't get the chance I did. That was some 40 years ago. Gebra Meskel eventually landed in Denver. She ran a bakery for a time, awful hours. But her new venture weaves the two themes from her childhood together, having lots of kids around and making sure they feel safe. Did you want to sample anything? Um, I think I want to um, sample lemon cheesecake, please. Sure. Sounds good. Gebru Meskel opened an ice cream shop just off East Colfax in Denver. She co-owns Walia Creamery with her sister, and you just heard the manager there, Shuit Habtu. 
scooping samples for seven-year-old Olivia Katz. Parents often stop here after picking their kids up from school. Is it okay if I try um, thin mint chocolate and cream, please? That's our flavor of the month. I'm glad you're trying that one. An ice cream parlor is a good environment for kids and families to come together, and sometimes even friends, and it doesn't create a bad energy in the neighborhood, honestly. It helps kind of make it a more peaceful environment. So really that was the initial motivation of doing an ice cream parlor. Uh, most of the neighbors did not like some of the environment that we had in the area before and for a reason because safety was an issue. There were bars, there were stuff like that. So I just said, no, we don't need bars in the middle of the neighborhood. We can really do something else. Yes, you make a little less money until you get it going, but it is a good way of, I can sleep at night. I'm not adding into the problems for the neighborhood. And you can sleep because you don't have to bake anymore. Exactly. (laughs) What does Walia mean? Walia is a name for a girl that means friendly. And I love that because we are kind of friendly by nature. And the team, the team works here, is everybody is friendly and we expect it as a business also. And then it's also a nice animal that is almost instinct from the Apex family. It's a wild god, and it lives in the high mountains in Ethiopia. And there are about 500 of them. So we just say maybe it reminds us of home. Gebru Meskel has tried to carve a niche out for herself with a wide array of both dairy and vegan ice creams, standards like chocolate and vanilla and strawberry, and more adventurous choices, Earl Grey, lavender, honey, ginger, pear, all made from scratch. Where did you learn to cook? At home. My mom made every food we ate and everybody, so we are used to making stuff from scratch. As a child, when I grew up, we didn't even have a fridge, so we have to make everything every day. Is there much of an ice cream culture in Ethiopia? Is that something you grew up with? Not really. I mean, no ice cream out there. Right now, yes. Now they, the world is changing. The world is learning from each other. So, yes, there is. But at the ch- as a child, dessert was not even a main product people talk about. You know, if you're going to eat a dessert, it will be a nice fruit or something, but no ice cream at all. I wonder if any of the flavors and the traditions you grew up with make it into the ice cream. Yes, like ginger, purposely we put it there because ginger is a good healthy spice and cinnamon. Our caramel apple has cinnamon on it. And some of the teas, you know, even though maybe it's not Earl Grey, but black tea is common in my culture. So, and we know it has good antioxidant and healthy things. And we really do put real flavors. We don't just put a a dash. We do make sure the tea is soaked in and the flavor is there and all the nutritional value of the spices are in there. Because when I do spice apple, We do put cloves, cinnamon, ginger, all those good stuff. The chai is true chai, you know, and chai is something that we grew up. Our teas have the chai product, so. When you put tea in ice cream, I guess you start by boiling water and 
making tea? Not really. <laughs> there is a different way of doing it. Yes, that's the normal way to drink. Heating it up, you are squeezing the nutrition faster. But if I leave, leave it in the coconut cream or coconut milk overnight, it's going to suck all the flavor and I give it enough time so that I get all those things without heating the product. I wonder if you wanted to comment on how the ice cream market is in Denver. Is, it, is this a particularly popular place for ice cream? Well, we are a coming up business. We are young business. So a new independent business takes time to establish it. And uh, I know how to make a very good ice cream, but I may not be as sharp as I need to be in terms of promoting the business. So I can tell you my business is not at the level I want it to be. Uh, I think ice cream is a good business in Denver. Denver is very unique because I used to live in New York City. New York City people didn't eat ice cream a lot in the winter, but Denverites do. So sometimes when it's a snowy day, you get customers coming. And so we don't close even throughout the year. So it is a good business. And once you do the initial investment, it's probably a lot easier restaurant business than any other, I think, because of the labor demands and the scheduling also. So for that reason, I would think it's a good business for Denver people. And I haven't met many ice cream business owners, so maybe that's something I need to do. Some networking. (laughs) If I have the timeline correct, you opened just before the pandemic. Yes, that's uh, 2019, and uh, we were kind of learning to do the business, getting everything going, and it was okay. But all of a sudden, we had the the pandemic, and we had all kinds of other issues too. We had, uh, you know, demonstrations about the uh, one of the young men who got killed in uh, Minnesota, I think, and that was also many many people came to support black businesses because of that and during the pandemic that was really helping us a lot do you think that there are particular challenges you faced being a person of color running a business in colorado i can't tell you i faced because i'm a black person but i can tell you i may have faced because of the experience, what the business, you know, I'm a good producer, I can produce products, but do I really truly know how to promote the business? So in a way, uh, it's not because I'm only black, but not being an experienced business person, in that sense, I may have have a disadvantage. Mm. Uh, So that's what I think the disadvantage is not having the mentors or even me not reaching out to people who I could use as mentors or even professionals who can help us. It sounds like you are in search of a network to some extent. And I wonder how you deal with the stress of running a small business. Well, you have to just get up and do it again and again. Sometimes it is stressful because you know it takes money to run the business. And if the money is not coming, so yes, you get stressed out. But I have lived in America. I I was not born here. 
I had to pass through real difficult things to get here. So I always, I have a reference point where you can still make it. Things can get hard, but you will still make it because I did as a child, as a young person, were able to come here and establish myself, didn't even speak the language. So if you can go through that, you can go through this one too. But I wouldn't mind learning to make it easier and make the proper amount of income for the business. This is not a question I ask most guests, but what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? In our case, we have amazing chocolate. The base mix is always the same for everything, the vanilla mix, but then it's the flavorings that we put. And the cocoa that we use is Dutch processed good cocoa, and we generous on it. We don't just flavor it. We make sure you can taste the chocolate. So that's what, chocolate is my favorite. Yeshi Gebremeskel, who co-owns Walia Creamery, just off East Colfax in Denver. We spoke as part of Black Restaurant Week back in March, but with the summer heat, we wanted to scoop that story back up. Finally today, new music from a -a one-of-a-kind venue. In Rangeley, on the western slope, there's an old, empty water tank, seven stories tall. Inside, the acoustics are remarkable, so it's become a recording destination for locals and visitors. Slow Beethoven is the latest work produced at The Tank. String Quartet played Beethoven's Opus 131 at a dramatically slow tempo, one-seventh the normal speed. That allowed lush chords to linger. A seven-minute piece took more than 45 to play. As you can hear, the long reverberations make for an otherworldly sound, part Beethoven, part something entirely new. Beethoven, recorded at the Tank Center for Sonic Arts in Rangeley, Colorado. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team whose work reverberates. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.